You're investing in a very capital-intensive business. There's a lot of money, um, initial cash outlay. What does it take to leave your corporate job and go into business for yourself in order to open a tap room with two other partners? Bombshell Beer Company's co-owner and vice president of sales, Michelle Minuti, tells us what it takes to thrive in the craft beer industry in North Carolina. Welcome to my podcast, Beyond My Day Job, where we cover high-effort hobbies. And in this season, subtitled The Craft Beer Inquiries, I'm solely focused on the business behind the craft beer industry. This is Episode 5, as we continue to talk to founders and operators within the world of brewing frothy beverages. Let's get to it and hear from Michelle. Michelle, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So you are one of the players here in North Carolina, but you've got a a special claim to fame from what many people may not know, but why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and uh, what's, uh, what's coming in with Bombshell. Great. Well, thanks so much. So yeah, Bombshell, when we, um, we, meaning myself and one of my other business partners kind of conceptualized um, starting a brewery, we were like, hey, we're females. We like craft beer. And how many other, you know, women that are craft beer enthusiasts own a brewery? So we started to do a bunch of research. And in essence, what we found out at that time was there were about five 100% women-owned microbreweries that we could identify in the entire country. Um, We knew that the market was underserved in that demographic, but we didn't realize it was that underserved. So when we actually founded the brewery in 2012, um, we were North Carolina's first 100% women-owned craft brewery. And to this day, as far as we know, but many breweries open every single day, um, we're still the, the first 100% women-owned and the only 100% women-owned microbrewery in North Carolina. Yeah, that's great. So there, are, you know, and, and it's an interesting t- statistic because, um, you know, at times people have said, well, no, that's not right. We're 100% women-owned. There are a, a number of really wonderful, magnificent breweries that are majority women-owned, but not entirely. So yes, you could say it's semantics, but that and is the situation. And, and for the count, there are three of you, correct? Correct. So okay. yeah, three, three, I have uh, two other business partners yeah. and um, Ellen Joyner, who is the president of the company, okay. was actually the home brewer that really kind of inspired everything behind it. And she'd been home brewing um, for about 10 years. That's great. So how do you, how do you, um, how do you position? Because, you know, there's so many, so many notions and connotations of bombshell, right? So um, what's the play? So, you know, with the fact that we were 100% women owned and we were in the craft brewing industry was really kind of the bombshell, right? There's three main definitions of bombshell. There's, you know, the traditional sexy mm-hmm. perceived woman. Um, then, you know, there's artillery device or what have you. And then the other, one of the other definitions is something that's shocking and unexpected. And that was really the definition that resonated with us, that 
hey, we're women, we don't have beards, and um, we're, we're getting involved in craft brewing. So <laughs> um, that's shocking and unexpected because, you know, there's like this, this actual physical persona that absolutely. is absolutely uh, affiliated with the craft brewing industry. Right. We didn't really fit that. You know, so. Running around with flannel shirts all the time and rally beards. Yeah, that's oh, that's <laughs> I, that's that's a wonderful contrast. I never thought about that. The source of bombshell as a name, um, kind of evolved from Ellen and I hanging out in uh, when we were younger and more youthful. We would golf together all the time. And a number of the members at the golf club that we um, frequented, after we would finish golfing, they would come in and say, oh, here come the blonde bombshells, right? (laughs) We were younger and more youthful. Let's just put it that way. And so, you know, that kind of was like an, an element. We didn't really marry that up until we started really doing the research around there's no, there's very few women involved in the craft brewing industry. Right. And, you know, it's like her and I were initially the primary founders of it. So that, that was that uni- unifying element between her and I, like, oh, here come the bomb bombshells and <laughs> her and I met on the golf course and, um, now we're looking for something, you know, a name. How do we take something that maybe is in our history and marry that with something that transcends into what we're doing next? And that's how the name that how the name evolved. <laughs> we wanted something, you know, we wanted something that was, you know, somewhat uh, representative of the fact that we were females, right? right? right so I right. mean, this, you know, really hit on all of the different angles that. Um, we were looking for. Now yeah. we have had some flack mm-hmm. over our logo. I was going to um, ask you about the logo. So describe the logo for us. So for me, when we were when we were designing the logo, um, we wanted something that was feminine because we are women in the craft brewing industry. Yes. Um, and we wanted something that was empowering. Um, and we didn't really want it to be, you know, oh, this is, you know, Susan the average white person or what have you. We wanted something that embraced, you know, more demographic profile of people that are drinking. So we really liked the concept of a silhouette because it didn't necessarily attach, you know, a person of color, white, you know, or black or or Latino or what have you. It didn't, you know, necessarily embrace a specific there. Um, So we really liked that. And then, you know, the other thing was we like to have fun. And, and part of that is, you know, when you see our logo is the upward, hey, cheers. Right. And, you know, so we found a graphic designer that really embodied that. Um, the logo is on the sexier side. Um, we've talked about clothing, our logo, <laughs> um, you know, as time goes on and, you know, it's one of those things where you can't necessarily please everybody right. out there. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's it's fun. We like to look at the logo as the fact that um, it represents you know all women drinking, um, and you know more power to cheers to us. We did it, um, and we're having fun. Two questions: most challenging aspects of starting it and running it. 
So from a starting it standpoint, um, you're investing in a very capital intensive business. There's a lot of money, um, initial cash outlay, and there's build out, right? So you've got a lot of time where you're between the time that you're spending money and the time that you're producing money. For us, it was almost a year. Okay. Um, so, you know, you've got to have, you've got to be able to support your cash burn that you're going to have while you have no revenue production. Um, I think that's a really important thing. And, and then you've got to have the ability to have cash thereafter um, because, you know, you're ramping up operations and um, every brewery, you know, even if you have a, you know, the most advanced system, there is a learning curve with your system and understanding your water and just all of these other things that factor into, um, you know, really developing a good brewery. For us, we did a lot of market research before we embarked on this. Um, we basically homebrewed really heavily for hmm. about a year and a half, like literally almost every day after our corporate job, we would come home and brew until like midnight. <laughs> My goodness. Every day. Um, not every day, but sure. at least two or three days a week. Um, and we did that for almost a year, um, plus brewing on the weekends. And um, we produced a lot of beer. We would go to a lot of parties. Um, we would do blind taste testing. We would take some of the predominant craft beers that were in the marketplace um, at that time. And then we would basically have, you know, a four point uh, evaluation scale for, you know, comparing A, B, C, D. And we were doing a lot of, at that time, pale ales were still heavily in favor. Okay. All right. We had kind of like a pale ale that we thought was kind of our benchmark beer. Um, who buy, who drinks pale ales anymore? I mean, like, <laughs> hello. Um, but we benchmark it. Literally, we would go and we would buy like the, you know, the brand recognized pale ales, either at a local or a national level and put them into growlers and then ask people to do blind taste testing of different <laughs> beers that we had. And we were really encouraged because more times than not, we were, we would be voted equal or better than what was the national ah. pale ale okay. um, of a, a pale ale that I started drinking, you know, as a craft beer enthusiast and loved. So we were like, okay, well, I guess we can, we can brew some beer, at least on a homebrew level, <laughs> but it's a whole different thing when you start scaling up into a commercial side. And it, I think that was one of the challenges that we really knew. Um, we didn't really have any commercial brewing experience. Okay. And, you and know, by commercial for for the benefit of you know consumption sale or or on scale. I'm curious how, how you think of commercial, maybe both, but just qualify that when you say so. From you know commercial, when we're, we're when we were brewing at home, we initially started with you know five gallon batches. Got it. And then we bought a more sophisticated um, brew system that was. 20 gallon kettles that we really kind of take up to 27 gallons. So almost, almost, you know, a barrel of beer. Um, <laughs> we didn't quite get that yield, but, you know, commercially, most larger scale commercial systems are 10, 15, 20, 30 barrels. 
Um, so, you know, you're, you're brewing, you know, 400 plus gallons at a time instead of five. And it's kind of, you know, it's like baking. You just don't keep doubling things. It doesn't work that way as you scale up. Um, so we, you know, we as homebrewers really weren't certain about how to scale to a commercial level. And the other thing that is completely different is sanitation and disinfection processes at a commercial level are just, the chemicals that you use are vastly different. And we really didn't have expertise in, in that area. And we knew that, you know, developing our brewery, we really have to focus on either the production component or the operational running of the business, the numbers, the management. Mm -hmm. um, and historically, that's where our, our skill set and our core competencies were. We're running the business side of it because that's what we did in a corporate environment. Got it. Um, and we said, you know, we're going to go out and we're going to hire the talent set that's going to run, you know, the actual production element because, you know, the learning curve is expensive. Right. And we didn't want to really face that. Yep. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Play to your strengths. Yeah. Exactly. That's great. That's great. Um, gosh, you had said something that I was just thinking about. Um, I hear the, absolutely the theme about the capital intensive and, and you're the first person to kind of give me a horizon about, you know, money out, money out, money out. Uh, now I see some money in, right? So that's a, that's admirable. Daunting. No, it's still money out, money out, money out. <laughs> <laughs> At least you're, you're getting greater than zero. You know, to, you know, we're not talking about margins. That's not my business here. But um, yeah, you, you know, at least you got some inflow. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, the whole thing behind craft is showcasing some element of the beer in a really beautiful way. And, um, you know, one of the beers that we just brewed is, it, it's called Back in My Day IPA. Um, but it's really, it, it, you know, it's getting away from the maltiness of a beer. Like we do a, a more traditional West Coast IPA that has a really big body to it called Head Over, Head Over Hopped. Okay. And this Back in My Day is really kind of going back to maybe some old school IPAs. It's not totally, you know, burn your mouth out, you know, 120 IBUs, how much more bitter can I make this? Um, let me lick another pine tree. Um, <laughs> but just a lot of the nuances of some really beautiful hot flavors. And, um, you know, being able to discern each hot um, and then, you know, in singularly within that beer. Um, so it goes back to that whole craft element, like how do you make it balanced so that each particular ingredient really shines through. It's unique. Yeah. yeah but... So, I mean, I think, I think, you know, from just a, a flavor chasing perspective, I think IPAs are always going to be, you know, a dominant part of the, you know, the overall percentage of craft beers that are sold in the portfolio. Um, but, you know, drinking a really well-crafted um, dry hopped Pilsner um, is, you know, it's a beautiful experience. Um, but it gets, I don't want to say it gets boring, but it's well-crafted. There's not as many, it, there's not as much decadence to it, right? And IPA has got more decadence. Or, you know, you get into pastry stouts, like, you know, let's throw 
cinnamon rolls right, and right. cookies and yeah, yeah. Yep, <laughs> so yeah. there's you know i think there's tons of creativity there um and you know in general i think from a technical standpoint as far as brewing is concerned most brewers have disdain for milkshake ipas or pastry stouts or what have you because they don't tax their technical brewing abilities yeah. like a very beautiful pilsner or um you know a, a nice hellas or what have you. you it you can't cover flaws in those types of beers so there's just an inherent desire for brewers to say well, i want to do more lagers and you know cleaner beers where i can't just throw sh shit in it and it, it's good right right yeah i just put, I put you know it's like put sugar on it and it'll be fine right yeah yeah but i think i think what you know obviously you know beer has um definitely you know had some competition that it has gotten heavier in the past three years um from the spirits market from the seltzer market um you know and and now, like, you know, traditional craft beer versus non-alcoholic or lower cal craft beers, you know, another segment that, you know, is completely growing for yeah. just lifestyle choices that people make. Um, you know, I always lament about the fact that, um, you know, in the early 2000s, I did drink, I, I wasn't a big craft beer drinker. Um, and, uh, you know, most craft beers are most really tasty craft beers are not locale. <laughs> that coupled with middle age and working too many hours in my <laughs> the pounds came on. Oh. So, um, you know, we actually put a, a lower um, carb and a lower cal um, session IPA in our portfolio last year that clocked in at three carbs um, and 95 calories. And it was interesting, like, we put it up in our tap room and we didn't broadcast that it was three grams of carbs and 95 calories. And then like two weeks later, we put like these stickers up there that said three grams of carbs and 95, it became our number one selling beer that weekend. Uh -huh. So, you know, and, and that was really kind of like, you know, marketing lesson learned for us that this is attractive for consumers and you really need to embrace and evaluate your entire marketplace that you're selling to and make certain that you have something that they want. You, so I'm gonna, I wanna expand on your comment about the um, back in the day IPA, you know, some of the things that um, basically trigger, you know, innovation for, you know, what, what's inspiring some of your other, your other brands. Um, and so keep me honest, do you view each unique uh, flavor, you know, you label it, it gets its own cool logo, et cetera, you know, the variety of things like that. Do you call that a, is that a brand? Is that a flavor? What's, what's the moniker that you associate with each unique, different, you know, tasting craft beer? So beers? we kind of segment into the different styles um, of beer. And this is actually, it, it's funny that you mentioned it because it's an exercise um, that we're trying to get more discipline around. Um, we have the benefit of being small, but yet we're growing and we're, you know, we used to 
you know, pivot on a dime, that space is now a quarter. So like things that we used to be able to do more easily, you know, two years ago, we can't necessarily do that now. So we've got to put a little bit more structure. So we've really been looking at our portfolio and, um, you know, looking at what types of beers we need through the entire time. Um, but, you know, one of the things that a lot of people don't understand about a craft brewery that's our size is one of the things that really drives what we do is yeast, and which is, you know, one of the key ingredients in beer. And, you know, yeast is a living, breathing organism that you have to manage in a particular fashion. And yeast is expensive as far as a component of um, the brewing process. So, you know, we have um, three main strains that we use in the brewery and to keep that yeast viable and healthy and doing what we need it to do from, um, you know, a, a brewing standpoint, we have to have a particular schedule. So there's this whole, you know, complexity of figuring out what styles, you know, we have to brew to keep our yeast healthy and what schedule we need to adhere to. Um, and that's really, you know, it's, it's something that's really challenging because if you've got to go out and buy, you know, what we call a pitch of yeast and spend four to $800 on it and you're only brewing one batch, it's just not cost effective to do that. Um, you can do it, but you're not going to be a sustainable business for a long period of time if you, you do that. Um, so that's like, that's a, another big thing for, you know, a smaller brewery is just that whole scale of, yeast management and keeping it healthy and um, you know aligning that to your production schedule. Give me a sense raw magnitude of order or, or ranking of pecking order of um, cost factors when you look at the, the, the ingredient inputs. So if you kind of went from biggest thing to not the largest cost to make a batch, what, what are you talking? What do you rattle off? Grain, grain is your top line. Okay. Um, right. you, you know, your top line cost. Um, you know, and then depending on, you know, what style, if you're putting any adjuncts in it, like if you're doing, you know, real fruit or something with that nature, that can be a secondary or tertiary level of cost. Um, yeast is going to depend on how many generations you get. For instance, mm -hmm. with our hazy IPAs, we usually, you know, get maybe four generations of yeast use. So if we're paying somewhere in the area of, you know, six or $700 for the yeast, um, you know, divide that by four. Um, now, as compared, you know, we have other beer that we produce with um, what's called like an American ale slash Chico strain. And we might get nine, 10 upward um, generations out of it. So if we buy that pitch at six hundred dollars, you know, obviously, sure, you know, that by nine, correct. Yeah. yeah so it's right. on a sliding scale. Water's another, you know, water's another big component, okay. um, that you know we pay for, and um, what about your and hops? Um, okay, I was going to ask. <laughs> hops. So. If, if we're doing IPAs, then hops could be, you know, it's grain then hops. Got it. Got it. <laughs> Do you source your hops from within North Carolina or wherever do you have, you have your preferred mm. supplier of that? So hops are predominantly produced in the Pacific Northwest or out in Germany. And then to some extent down like in New Zealand and Australia, depending on what variety. There's other places, but those are kind of the big 
the big source areas. I have to say, being a longtime, you know, lifelong Michigander in the Traverse City area on the northwest lower peninsula on Lake Michigan, it's on the same latitude as Bordeaux. So the wine country up there is actually prolific. They're hop growers up there. I'm like, I never knew Michigan had hop farmers. Yeah, and we, we buy a fair amount from um, the Michigan Hop Growers Alliance too. Um, but a lot of it, you know, the citra and uh, hops, that's one hop that we use a fair amount um, in the brewery, Mosaic, Gal um, well, Galaxy's down in Australia, but, um, you know, the, the hops are expensive. <laughs> Okay. And, you know, yeah. some, you know, one, oftentimes hops will, on contract, you're looking at, you know, from good hops, when I say good hops, just the more, more um, in demand, yeah. uh, you know, anywhere from like 10 to 13 bucks a pound. And, you know, something, some of the Australian hops, I know we've paid 30, 35 bucks for Galaxy because we don't have it on contract. Does that include um, uh, the transportation? Yes. Shipping it, yeah. all that, all included. Okay. Fully That's loaded cost. Fully loaded, <laughs> right. What's your favorite, your, your personal favorite that you guys brew? So, you know, it's so funny because that's like, a, that's oh, like the question. What's, what's your, your favorite what's your beer? Favorite? Yes. <laughs> it's like asking me who's my favorite children, you know, child, right? Like okay. some days I like some more than others. Like dance around the answer. Give me a, you know, category. <laughs> you know, like my son got a speeding ticket last week. So he wasn't my favorite. My daughter was. <laughs> I'm with you. But, you know, I, I really, I, I do like a lot of hazy IPAs. Please don't okay. shoot me. No worries. Um, no. <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting. I love Belgians, but we don't typically do a lot of Belgians. Um, so I, I you know, it, it's, it's a really bizarre question to ask me because I actually have a really broad palette. Um, and a, a, I really appreciate a lot of different styles. Um, you know, and I really can't say like, if I sit here and like, oh, is there one that I really don't like and care for? <laughs> I mean, I love a nice saison. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I love some of the funky things um, that are being done with Brett and Lacto and, um, you know, just a lot of the different fruited sours. Um, What's yeah, I, what, you what know, but bourbon barrel aged. So, you know, I love barrel aged beers. Um, that what was really cool. Um, we won a, a GABF medal with um, one of our bourbon barrel aged beers, which was Bur um, Lady in Red bourbon barrel aged um, in 2019. We won a bronze medal in, in the wood and barrel age category. And I thought that was really cool because, I mean, there's some big players that enter into that segment. Um, so we, we were pretty stoked um, about that. Um, May I ask you in those cases, um, are you buying the used barrels? You have so, to acquire yes. the barrels, yes. Yes. So we've done um, we've done a lot of Buffalo Trace yeah, uh, barrels, yeah, yeah. and um, those have made some really smooth and mellow beer um, for us. Um, we've done some Maker's Mark. We've done some Heaven Hills. Um, we're actually getting ready to do some rum barrels mm -hmm. um, with our coconut stout. So, and then. 
Um, we are actually hopefully going to be moving into an additional location that is really going to be um, help us really establish a strong barrel program, um, which we haven't been able to do because of space limitations um, at our current location. So we're pretty stoked about that. How many production facilities do you have? You have the one in the one. Holly Springs, right? In yeah. Holly, little Holly Springs. Holly Springs, North Carolina, folks. <laughs> it's a delightful location. It's, it's it is. It's, yeah. You know, I live there. I brew there. I golf there. You know, and more retail moves in, so I never have to leave. It's like a self-contained, you know. <laughs> Your beer bubble. Self-contained suburbia. <laughs> okay. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if this is a fair question, but it was on the list, so I'm curious. Um, funnest or, or most painful fail that you've learned from? Let's talk about it in a positive, a, le a, gr a great lesson learned in terms of making a batch. Um, oh, wow. Let's, let's see here. Um, the more epic. So I'll tell you, I mean, I think the funnest brews that we've, or some of the funnest ones. Um, so um, I'm part of an organization called Pink Boot Society, which was founded to um, encourage education and scholarship mm -hmm among women in women professionals in the brewing or in the beer industry. So you could be a server, you, you know, you could be a, a brewer, you could be a tap room manager. You just have to have some tangential component um, to the brewing industry. Um, every, for the past couple of years, we've done a collaboration brew with um, women and men professionals in the brewing industry um, in and around the, the triangle and the triad, they've come to bombshell. Um, and we brewed a collaborative brew for the Pink Boot Society of which we end up donating money and proceeds from um, the sale of the beer back to the scholarship um, aspects. And that's really been, uh, those have been some really fun days um, to get together with everybody and um, you know, celebrate the fact that we're trying you know, to pay it forward and um, do that, you know, do something in that realm. So that, nice. that's been really cool. That's good. It's the first time I've heard that example because I certainly see it in other trade organizations, you know, National Association of Manufacturers. They do a lot of, you know, investment to say, hey, look, you know, manufacturing in general, whatever, you know, flavor you're talking about, uh, it's not a dirty, dark, unsafe place that some other person's kids, you know, take a job into. So, they're like, you know, this has got STEM, right? Science, technology, yep. engineering, mathematics, all tied and all the other things. So um, that's really inspiring to hear. You guys are you know, paying it forward, you know, with <laughs> that's good, nice. And, 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 you know, and we've had, we've had some fails. Um, we've, had a, we've had a fair amount of fails around equipment failure. Mm. You know, one of the important things um, to do is cool your beer properly. and. We have a really robust chiller and we've had a couple of times where it's malfunctioned and um, especially in the summertime when it's, you know, a hundred degrees out and we're trying to get, you know, a batch cooled in the appropriate amount of time and we have an equipment failure um, or, you know, a probe breaks off or something just, you know, completely frustrating and unforeseen and now we're dumping, you know, 11, $1,200 batch down the train oh. and 
and and and you know, and we've had we've had some fails. Um, we've had a, we've had a fair amount of fails around equipment failure. Mm. You know, one of the important things um, to do is cool your beer properly, and we have a really robust chiller, and we've had a couple of times where it's malfunctioned, and um, especially in the summertime when it's you know a hundred degrees out, and we're trying to get you know a batch cooled in the appropriate amount of time, and we have an equipment failure. You know, it's yeah, yeah. And, and and it and it screws up production because we've typically you know operated as you know, a just-in-time brewery. So if we have a batch that is going down the drain, it's going to disrupt our supply chain. And, you know, we, you know, our outward supply chain to our wholesale customers. And, you know, unfortunately that might cause an empty shelf space at, a, you know, a retail level, which is not what you want because yep. you're trying to, you know, maximize your data that shows your sell your sell through, um, so that when decisions are made, like what brands get positioned in what place, you know, if you lose out on a week or two of sales data, it's harmful, you know, overall. So that's reality. That's a big reality in terms of an you, you hit up the next topic about getting out in the wild beyond someone coming to your direct, you know, brewery. So um, what can you share with us about some of the ways in which you found you? Cause you know, I, I picked you up at retail, right? I yeah. The, the Imperial Stout. And so we are so how did you get seller. wild? Where did, why, <laughs> yeah. What, what show, why did you think you wanted to get on retail? <laughs> and then yeah. you know, what did that so, take? You know, it's, it, it's really interesting. So we, when we founded the brewery, it was really, we were the 11th brewery in Wake County. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Right. And now there's like 60. Okay. So the, um, the industry show. really evolved dramatically between like 2012 to 2016. And, you know, a lot of what we thought was going to be our business plan. Um, we never imagined that our tap room was going to do as much revenue as it, as it does. We, you know, I remember our original business plan was that we were only going to be open Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays. And we were going to be open on Fridays from like four to eight o'clock. And then Saturday, we were going to do, I think, two to nine. Um, and then I skipped Thursday. Thursday, I think, was going to be like four to eight again. And <laughs> yeah. We're so, open seven days a week now. Seven days. So, so, okay, let, I'm going to ask something. So if the demand, well, okay, fairness, you've got, relatively speaking, you could argue you have a saturated local market. So the fact that you say, no, we better be open more because the choice is so high. So we, I need to compromise. <laughs> to well, literally, I mean, <laughs> literally, we, we, we didn't open on Monday, Tuesdays and Wednesdays and like, people would come and walk up and then like turn away, like scorning us. And right. it was like, no, uh, we don't want to open our doors. We don't want your money. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. They're trying to pull the glass door and it yeah. doesn't open. Yeah. You know? So, you know, we're like, it looks viable. And, you know, obviously the town that we're in has grown the demo, you know, the whole population base has increased substantially since we were here. And I know that that played a factor into it, but you know, people kind of like that, that cool brewery vibe. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think the other thing too, that's really interesting, like this is just 
a general observation, at least for us, we don't serve liquor. Um, we are, you know, we're just, we are just a brewery tap room. We don't have food. Um, and there's a certain element of what doesn't happen if you don't have liquor on premise. Um, like I can tell you the times where we've had problems with people coming into our tap room have been because they've come from other places where they probably been doing shots and now they're moved on here or whatever. Um, so, you know, I, I just think it's just a more chill, you know, vibe for a lot of people where they want to go and chat with, you know, some friends and have a couple of beers and, you know, be in a different, you know, space than at home or, or what have you, or at, you know, at a bar where the, the next person is, you know, slamming down, you know, $2.50 beer du jour, um, and then, you know, chasing it with a shot of Jameson and getting all stupid. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Don't need stupid. <laughs> and just for the benefit of our listeners, Michelle, um, describe your tap room. So our tap room is about 1,200 square feet. Um, we, you know, it, it has a kind of two personalities. Um, we have this roll-up door. When that's down, it's kind of a little bit darker. Um, when it's up, everybody loves it. It's bright and it's, it's you know, it's really brewery Um We have an amazing um, bar manager, Chris, who's been with us, it'll be six years, um, the beginning of April. Mm. And um, all of our, most of our other bar staff have been with us for like, you know, four plus years. So we have, you know, Mondays through Thursdays, we have a lot of our, you know, local customers that come there. And then predominantly, you know, somewhat on Fridays, but Saturdays and Sundays are really, we're drawing from, you know, a, a, a wider reaching or longer reaching platform base. But, you know, during mostly Monday through Thursday, we really have kind of like the radius of our customers is probably about five miles plus, you know, or less. Um, so we are, you know, typically more of that local, local establishment. Um, we have food trucks um, that we partner with, you know, in hindsight, and this is going back to this evolution of, um, you know, what, where is the marketplace for breweries? You know, we would, it's really on, you know, a food and a beer concept. Um, you know, that's, that's been, um, the most rewarding. And if you have food, then you can have liquor, but that's a whole, you know, other set of problems, but it is, you know, it is something that people want. Um, we are, the space that we're in right now is not zoned for us to have a food on premise. Um, so that would be something that we would have to address, you know, and these are the types of things like, if I only knew then what I know now, like, um, you know, we didn't think that was going to be important, but you know, it's important when you're developing things to think about things that may not be important now that could be like, what are the, you know, what are the potentials? What are the hurdles? Like, okay, food isn't important now, but what if the market evolves and it is, and we're in the space, you know, what does that mean? Like, are we going to have to move on? So I think, you know, those are some things that if people are looking to start a brewery, like, you know, you really have to sit there and evaluate those types of things and understand the space that you're getting into. Okay, give me your crystal ball. Where's the industry heading? Where? So I, I think, you know, there's, 
there's a couple of things, you know, I think the whole regional versus hyper-local thing, I think that that is going to continue to expand. And I think what's really, let me step back here. There's a lot of dynamics and influences that are happening that could be really difficult for hyper-local breweries. Um, and then there's a lot of things for regional breweries that are not gonna be good for them as well. So one of the big things that, you know, has percolated through is um, aluminum shortage right now for cans. Mm. And that is gonna, that is getting real in a big, big I, way. I was gonna ask um, you about the, the can shortage. So one of the things that's cool is that um, uh, many of the suppliers of cans have prevented hoarding where you can order basically on what your previous run rate was. But if you said, oh, I want to order, you know, 20, you know, X units, um, and that hasn't been your typical ordering pattern, they're not allowing you to do that. And that's actually a really good thing. Okay. Um, so the bad, the really, really, really bad news is um, that there, the can shortage is getting worse. So why, yeah. why, back me up, why is aluminum cans shorting? So the, it, there's several factors. Number one, you know, just cans are becoming more in vogue, right? Everybody's moved, away, you know, the trend is away from glass. God. Well, that puts demand. Now you've got, you know, this whole seltzer market that, you know, they're demanding cans. So there's all of these you know, beverages, um, you know, a lot of the energy drinks, all of these different, you know, new to market players yeah. are all in cans and in aluminum. And then you do have some of the big powerhouses. Um, and I don't know, you know, this is somewhat secondhand or urban legend, you know, there was this big story that Pepsi went out and bought, you know, they, they, forecasted that there was going to be a shortage so they started buying up supply Got it. and you know and that's just put the squeeze so you know it's all of that's happening but the big thing that is going to happen very soon is significant price increases in cans and we've been informed from our can supplier that we're now going to be going to what's an import can and it's going to be twice the cost of the previous cans that we have now meaning their aluminum supply is coming from abroad correct okay. well they're 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 can they're can manufacture got it got um, it so with that being said um for smaller breweries either have their own canning line or they do something called mobile canning and we did mobile canning when we first started as a brewery from the time that we started mobile canning to the time that we stopped mobile canning when we bought our own canning line in 2018, basically the cost of that service doubled in a two-year time period. The mobile canning service did. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, so in, just for definition, you've got the cans elsewhere, someone else, and you're filling elsewhere and then bring or... So they come, they bring all of the equipment to the brewery and you fill on your premise. And then they take equipment and that leaves. 
they leave. Or exactly. they leave, right. Okay. Otherwise yeah. you own the canning line and it's there and you're continually producing or pour. Correct. Or, okay. Okay. Got it. Interesting. But they charge, you know, the way mobile canners work is they charge you per fill. So the, the, the cost component of the per can fill basically doubled between 2016 and 2018. My goodness. Yeah. And now the cost of cans has gone up significantly. So, you know, I look at some of these small breweries that are using mobile canning and there's no margin in it. Right. You know, it's, I mean, it's, it's almost going to be a negative. So it's not going to be sustainable and it's really going to be hard. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see if some breweries move back to glass as an option because that is a viable, you know, business option. What does that do for your labeling, physical labeling production? If you move to glass and you've been heavily, your mix is heavily on aluminum. So it's a whole different ball game. I mean, we, we don't do any bottling. We, you know, you can get like, a, you know, a forehead maheen to do bombers, but you know, nobody wants bombers anymore, you know, unless they're super, it's a super high end beer. Um, you know, cans are the preferred packaging, you know, construct. And um, so, you know, it's, it's a whole different setup. It's a whole different retool per se, as but far as- Ounce for ounce, raw material, aluminum's cheaper. Should be in theory, other than now the demand, but from a base, you know, glass, you know, production or, you know, cr you know bottle creation, I know I'm not speaking in school, but I've understood that, you know, obviously lighter weight, plus it helps you on your shipping costs, right? Weight. Yep. And storage. That's the other thing too, you know, because uh, a bottle, you give a lot of space right. that is wasted space with a bottle. Got it. Got it. Okay. All right. It's amazing. Okay. Um, <laughs> gosh. Yeah. So you, you're number Things about beer you never thought about. Well, you're number three that's told me that about, because I was going to ask him like, okay, are you seeing a can shortage basically? And you know, it's like, yeah, top of mind. Well, let's end on a high note. And with you running the sales arm of Bombshell, <clears throat> tell us how we can find you online. What's, what's your, what's your digital presence out there? So our digital presence, um, we have our www.bombshellbeer.com. And to that, you can uh, order online. You can order kegs. You can pick, order beer for pickup. Um, you know, we have our wonderful tap room, um, Facebook, Instagram. Um, you know, all, all of that is definitely in our digital presence. Um, as far as distribution is concerned, we have a really strong footprint footprint with um, Lowe's That's um, foods yeah. um, and you know and, and I'm just going to give a shout out to Lowe's foods because they support local North Carolina products so like you have choices um, they do a really great job supporting all of the local breweries um, in North Carolina um, their beard end programs I mean you know you can go there on Thursdays and they have fan, you know fantastic specials and I thought like the coolest thing ever was, um, you know, I, I go to my local Lowe's Foods and here it is, I own a brewery and then I was drinking my own beer while I grocery shop. <laughs> That's like, cool. Hello. It's like watching <laughs> yourself on a TV commercial. Yeah, you know? <laughs> like how cool is this, you know? Um, <laughs> but, you know, and, you know, and a shout out to, you know, some of the other 
triangle, uh, triangle wine, total wine, whole foods, Harris Teeter. Um, we're not as prolific in Harris Teeter, um, but they do, they do carry us in certain locations. Um, but, you know, it always helps if you like our beer and you don't see it, just tell them you want it. A big shout out and credit to Mike Cardas for the opening guitar riff. And if you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Beyond My Day Job. You'll find it on any of your favorite podcast feeds, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and Anchor. And, good or bad, leave me a review. I'm genuinely interested in what you think. Have a great day.